thank you for being here this morning. We're at a point where uh, David and the pastors that are preaching are preaching and staying a little bit longer on the the story of the woman at the well, which David was on this morning. Um, right after that story ends in John, Jesus goes into Galilee and preaches. And it's just a couple of verses in John, but I've taken that time in our contextual reading to go for a couple of weeks to put in the Sermon on the Mount, which is some teaching Jesus did in Galilee. And so it doesn't quite merge perfectly with where David, Pastor David was this morning, but it's still part of it. So the Sermon on the Mount, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I absolutely love it because in the Sermon on the Mount, it's like it's the core of the apple on how to live. And I thought that slide was going to animate, but it didn't. It's the core of of how to live. Let me explain what I'm talking about. Uh, We go back for a moment. You can read in the Old Testament lots of to-dos and lots of how-to-lives and lots of lessons. And then you get to the New Testament, and I think one of the things that really concerned the people in Jesus' day was Jesus didn't simply interpret the Old Testament the way it was typically done. In Jesus' day, the way it would typically be done is the rabbis would say, the teachers would say, um, um, you know, the scripture says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but rabbi so-and-so says this, and rabbi so-and-so says this, and this is interpreted that way, and this is interpreted the other way, and da-da-da-da-da. Jesus would stand up, and instead of quoting all of the rabbis to see what a scripture meant, which was the common thing to be done, Jesus would just stand up and say, you've read this, but I tell you that. And, and, and the people were amazed and they would say, quote, Jesus taught as one with authority, close quote. And that's the reason they thought that. Because Jesus wasn't quoting what rabbis said, the well-known famous rabbis said about Scripture. So it's not Rabbi Gamaliel or Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, Jesus would just say, you've read this in, in the Scripture or you've heard this in the Scripture, but I tell you, and he would extend and explain. And Jesus spoke as one with authority. Because what Jesus did is tried to explain the Old Testament not only by what he taught, but by how he lived. And so you combine what Jesus was doing in that way with the New Testament church, which is taking hold. And by the time Matthew writes his gospel, there is a huge concern that the Christians have just basically torn the Bible in half. Uh, um, Although they didn't really have a New Testament Bible. At least the the Christians had taken the Old Testament scriptures and just found them to be useless. And so Matthew reaffirmed what Jesus taught. Namely, that Jesus was not ignoring the scriptures. Jesus was taking the scriptures that are the apple. and, and, And Jesus was giving you the core of how to live. Which would have made better sense on that if I'd animated the slide better. Sorry, I messed it up. But that's what you've got in the Sermon on the Mount. It's that core that kind of synopsizes or or puts together what the Bible, what God teaches us about common, everyday living. Now, as believers in Christ, we understand this is not living to merit God's love, favor, or eternal life. 
This is living to be living in God's plan, which is our goal. Don't get me wrong. Doesn't mean that we don't have persecution. Doesn't mean God's plan doesn't have a roughness to it. Doesn't mean it doesn't scare you to death when you have some 22-year-old pregnant lady walking through your bathroom. But it means that you're going to live by God's plan. And that's something we only do out of faith because I'm not sure anybody else would do this otherwise. Some of it doesn't make as much sense as you would like. So with that, let's throw up the whiteboard and let's talk for a minute about what we've got here. The passage that we're looking at is out of Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I hope you liked that. That animated really well. That took an hour and a half this morning. So I don't have any more PowerPoint because I did it all there. Um, so we'll do it again. Um, let's see. Here it goes. The whiteboard goes up. Look at this. I may try and do this again sometime. This is, this is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Okay, what does Matthew 5, 17 through 20 say? In essence, it's Jesus saying, I did not come to destroy the law but I and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. If we look at it on the Elmo, we'll see uh, Jesus saying it as follows. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, do you see the way the English Standard Version has capitalized law and capitalized prophets? Ordinarily, you would not capitalize those words unless they're proper names, right? We learned that in English uh, in college. No, I think that was actually earlier. Uh, we learned that in English early on. You don't capitalize unless it's a proper name or the start of a sentence. This is a proper name. The, the translators determined, rightfully so, the Old Testament at the time of Jesus was divided into either two or three sections, depending upon who you were talking to. Either two, the law and the prophets, in which event the law are the first five books, also called the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. Those are the law. And the prophets was everything else. Later on, actually during the time of Christ is the transition period where the Jews started dividing the prophets up into two groups, the prophets and the other writings, or sometimes they just call them the Psalms. And so you'll see Jesus making that reference one other time to the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. But that transition is now complete, and Jewish scriptures today are divided into those three parts. The law, the prophets, and the other writings. The ketuvim in Hebrew. And so, Scripture in Hebrew, they call their Bible the Tanakh, which comes from the Torah, the T, the Nevaim is the N, and the ketuvim is the CH or the K at the end. So the Tanakh stands for those three sections. Jesus is saying here, don't think I've come to abolish what we would call the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish the Old Testament writings. I've come to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not even a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
So whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he gives that stirring comment that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or you don't even enter the kingdom of heaven. They were like the holy Joes. They're the really righteous. and, And it's true. It takes the righteousness of Christ to get into heaven. Something far beyond the righteousness that any human could have. So Jesus, in talking about the law here, and he adds that last sentence to show the importance of the law, the importance of the law for righteousness, Jesus never disputes. But Jesus here teaches us some core of how to live. If we go back to the PowerPoint, Jesus doesn't come to dismantle, but he came to fulfill. Now, I think that's an important concept. So we need to look at the word dismantle. We need to look at the word fulfill. And we need to understand what they mean. Dismantle. The Greek word for dismantle is kataluo. It comes from kata, which means down, and luo, which is kind of to, to go down or to tear down. Think of it as destroying, demolishing. It's the same word Jesus uses when he says, I will demol- what sign will you give us? I'll demolish this temple in three days rebuild it. And, and it means to dismantle something. Um, I was going to use this picture of a wrecking ball, but Miley Cyrus has ruined that picture for us. <laughs> So I can't do that. But that's the image absent that lurid recognition of how it stands today. That's the image that it is. Jesus is saying, I did not come to wreck, to dismantle, to tear apart, to rip up, to destroy the law. I came instead to fulfill the law. Plereo in the Greek. Plerao is to fulfill. Now, fulfill has multiple concepts in, in, in the Greek, and, and I struggle to try to find one that helps us best understand this. And the best I could find was the idea of, of traffic signs. You know, you've got a, a road, you're driving somewhere, and there is a stop sign or a yield sign. And in the process of driving, you fulfill that sign when you yield, when you stop. Now you keep going on your journey. You don't tear the sign up. You don't say the sign was wrong. You don't say the sign was useless. But you can say the sign was fulfilled. And Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to destroy it. I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't even come to tell you it's wrong. I came to fulfill the law. And that's what Jesus does. And Jesus fulfills it in a variety of ways. First, he lives perfectly. He fulfills it in that sense. Second, there are parts of the law where the sacrifices and things that speak of Jesus and what Jesus would do. And he fulfills those very directly. So we're left as Christians in the 21st century with a really neat opportunity we get to read the Old Testament and try to figure out what we should be living by and what we shouldn't. Which laws are useful and which laws are not useful? 
Which laws are right for us to live by and which laws are not? How many of y'all have sacrificed a goat in the last year? Okay, most of you haven't. A couple of you. Um, you know, we get a good key for this from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus takes it and shows us certain things that we can learn to live by. Um, whoops, get back down there. Sorry. Um, so, we had in our first passage with this, this Matthew passage, I sent us to Leviticus 6 through 9, to Leviticus 19, 19 through 37, Leviticus 20, 27. And those are marvelous passages because some of them tell you things that make a lot of sense. But some of them have passages in them that make no sense at all. Like, don't combine fabrics in the clothes that you wear. I mean, I like 100% cotton. But, yeah, color me guilty. I wear things that are combined. Look, I dare say this jacket's combined. I dare say, while I think this shirt's 100% cotton, I sure wouldn't vouch for the threads on it. Because I'll bet the thread may not be. And it might have a tag on the back that's not made out of cotton. And I mean, that's a major taboo under the Old Testament law. So you got to figure out what are you going to follow and what aren't you. If you talk to the Jews about it, the Jews have some interesting classifications. They classify the law as mishtapim. Those are those laws that make sense. The edot laws, which are the ceremonial laws. And then the laws that are chuchim. The chuchim laws are the ones that just make no sense at all. They seem absolutely irrational. And so you've got these classifications of those that are mishpatim, those that are rational. They easily make sense. Thou shalt not commit murder. Okay, I got that one. And I can understand why. And then there are the ceremonial laws. Sacrifice the goat. Kill the pigeon. Honor the feasts of the tabernacles. and Live in a tent. You know, I, I, you've got those that are the festival laws, the edot. But the chukim, I mean, those, this thing about don't mix milk and meat. Actually, the law is you don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. But the rabbis interpreted that to mean not to mix milk and meat. The dietary laws. There are a number of laws that to us, are, and even to good Jews today, are seemingly irrational. And then you've got the camps on how do you deal with those. One group says, those seemingly irrational laws, eh, don't worry about those. If they made sense, we'd follow them. And then the other group says, oh no, those are the most important ones. Because you show your faithfulness when you follow in lack of understanding. If it's something that doesn't make sense to you, but God said it and you're willing to do it, that's where you're most showing your faithfulness to God and your holiness. And so you've got all of these different camps. And you sit there and I sit there and we think, gee, isn't it easier just to throw away the Old Testament and live with the New Testament? No, it's not. There are certain things in the Old Testament that are very important for us that we do live by. And we do honor. And you think, yeah, but they're repeated in the New Testament. No, not all of them are. So we don't just throw it away. So we look at it and we try to figure out how to live. So what do you do when you turn to something like Leviticus chapter 6? Let's turn there together and just look at a little bit of this. 
Leviticus chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, if he's oppressed his neighbor, if he's found something lost and lied about it, my dad was famous, not for, for stealing and lying about it. <laughs> dad was as honorable a man as you'll find in this, meticulously. But if we ever found a dollar lying around, Dad would say, I think that's mine, jokingly. Say, Dad, I don't think so. Yeah, I lost one, and it looks just like that. You know, and that was a, it looks just like that. And it's a recognition that there in the day, Hey, that sheep. What do you mean that was your sheep? That was my sheep. You just found him wandering down the road. If someone does that and has sinned and he realizes his guilt, he's got to restore what he took. He's got to give it back. If he swore falsely about something, he's got to restore it in full and pay punitive damages, as we lawyers would call it, or prejudgment interest. He's got to add a fifth to it. You can't just hang on to it and then a month later after you've done what you needed to with it, oh, yeah, I guess it is your lawnmower here. Sorry, blade's a little dull. I had to use it. Um, uh, He'll bring to the priest as his compensation. And so you've got this, and all of it makes sense to us until we get to this part. Bring to the priest as compensation a ram without blemish for a guilt offering. You think, well... We, we, we don't do that, do we? No, we don't do that. You can keep reading through here the Leviticus 19 passage. Leviticus 19, starting with verse 19. Look at these. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. See, this is Gotexan Day. We found it in the Bible. This was meant to be read during Gotexan Week. You don't interbreed cattle? How do we get Brangus then if we don't breed the Brahma with the Angus? How do we get the wonderful meats and the benefits we've got if we don't interbreed our cattle? Continues to say, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Well, that's going to make for a pretty dull diet. Especially if you grow onions. I can't, like, at least get some tomatoes for some salsa. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Look at this. If a man lies sexually with a woman who's a slave, assigned to another man, and yet not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They'll not be put to death because she wasn't free. He'll just bring... I mean, what? This whole concept here is one that as believers, we have a chance to struggle with. But what I think ultimately Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is a key to unlocking our understanding. Because what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is, 
Don't read these things simply as formal rules to make you righteous before the Lord. Your righteousness has to exceed those who are the really good rule followers. Because what you need to be focused on is getting your heart right with the Lord. And that tells you which of these are important and which are not. And I will tell you, if it violates your conscience before the Lord to wear clothes of two different kinds of material, then I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you to study about what God really is looking for in your life. Because I don't think it should be considered wrong. And number two, until your conscience follows, don't wear stuff of two different kinds of clothes. Honor your conscience. This is the same way Paul used the approach when Paul talked to the church about eating meat sacrificed to idols and doing some other things as well. It's our rational approach to understanding that Jesus unlocked the key in the Sermon on the Mount by telling us, look, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And don't think for a moment any of it passes away. It's all important. But what's really important for your righteousness in entering the kingdom is something that exceeds the letter of the law. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, that's, that is how to live. Jesus is teaching, hold on, we got it here. That is how to live. Boom, boom, boom. No, that's not there. That's how to live. Okay. Now, yeah. Okay, so Jesus teaches on the importance of the moral code. The moral code is important. He's not denigrating that. He's not making it irrelevant. He's teaching it to be important. And let's chart through some of his teaching. We've got about 20 minutes. Let's look at it together. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Jesus says the following. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And that's Deuteronomy 5.17, which I had us read right before that, while we were reading the moral code. So you've now heard that. You've read it. It's there. It's in Deuteronomy, not murder. But Jesus says, but I say to you, See, he's not quoting another rabbi. Jesus teaches as one with authority because he has authority. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother has something against you, you leave your gift before the altar and you go fix things with your brother and then you come back. Now, look, um, these, these, <laughs> Jesus isn't saying, gee, life is easy now. You live in grace. Sin is not something that's, that's um, unimportant. Sin is not something that's thrown away simply because we don't live by the Old Testament code. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount as how to live in the authority, under the authority of God, 
then all of a sudden these things become very important to us. If we look at it as something that's important for our righteousness before God, not because we're doing the right things on a checklist and it's external, but because internally we're seeing the God who owns us to whom we have pledged our lives. We're seeing that God say, I want to change you on the inside. I want to change who you are. I want to rewire the programming in your brain. I want to give you self-control you didn't have before. I want to give you wisdom you didn't have before. I want to give you an ability to say the things you've never had the ability to say. I want to give you control over your tongue. I want to give you control over your anger. I want to give you control over your finances. I want your life to be the richest life it can be under my plan. And my attitude generally is, okay, good, hurry. Instead of recognizing it's, okay, so here's how we start. This is what I expect you to be doing. When you slip up, you say, I'm sorry, Lord, I slipped up. And you get back up, and with the forgiveness you've got, and the guidance of the Spirit, and the strength that I'll give you, you're going to be changed little by little every day. Little by little in every way. Jesus is changing me. And so, can I quit insulting my brother? Do I hate anyone anymore? Is hate gone from my life? Oh, I could say the word hate is. Instead, there are just some people that turn my stomach, make me sick, and I don't want to have anything to do with them. As Pastor David was saying this morning, remember his example? You're driving down the road, the boom, 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 and you give them that look, as opposed to seeing everyone the way Jesus sees them as a soul. So, yeah, do I hate? No, there's just a bunch of people I don't like intensely. And I hope that their life goes to ruin. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, don't think you can get off just by not killing someone. I'm telling you, you shouldn't hate them. I'm telling you, you you shouldn't insult them. You shouldn't try and drag them down. You shouldn't try and ruin their lives. If you think vengeance is a dish best served cold, then your cold heart, it needs to be broken. Because vengeance is not a gift that we should be serving at all. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, the best way to get rid of your enemy is to make him a friend. Not easy to do always, but it's what needs to be done. So as we're looking at the passage, the first John 3, 4 through 8 passage is a great one. Remember, John's one of the ones who was very upset at the reception he got somewhere and told Jesus, hey, don't you think we ought to call down hellfire and destruction on these people because they didn't treat us the way they should have when we went among them to do some good deeds? Jesus said, uh, you're kind of missing the point. By the end of his life, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, had changed John's heart. John's life was different. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know, he appeared to take away sins. 
and in him there is no sin. Now, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. When I was a kid and I would read this, I would struggle with it. I would think, well, then I don't abide in Jesus because I keep sinning. No, no, no. Think of it in the terms that I've been talking this whole time. I don't keep on sinning in the sense that I stay in sin. I'm getting out of it. I won't get out of it in this life, but I am getting out of it. I don't just keep on sinning. I'm kicking the darkness till it bleeds daylight, to quote Bruce Coburn. No one keeps on, who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If, if we just live in sin with no regard to getting out of it, do we really know Jesus? Little children, he could write this. He's like 90 years old when he's writing this. Helen, at that, Helen's 90. At that point, you can say that you can call anybody you want. Child, little children, let no one deceives you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he's righteous. If you practice it, if you try it, if you make it a goal, if you're working toward it, if you care about it, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why would you want to keep on sinning and doing the works of the devil? A believer should not. We want to live our lives under the authority of Jesus. We want to know how to live. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him, and he can't just keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Keep, keep going. I mean, this, is just, this is an exposition of what Jesus was saying. This is John at the end of his life understanding the Sermon on the Mount, the passage we read. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message we've heard from the beginning. Love one another. Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because of his deeds. But we shouldn't be murdering. We should be loving. Loving each other. That's what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, a, it's the moral code. So we had those readings for a day. We will continue through the Sermon on the Mount. We won't make it through all of them today. You've got them in a handout. But let's look at a couple more that are my favorites. We'll do it a little quicker. Matthew 5, 27. It's just a continuation of that thought. But in this, Jesus says, You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, you can look at this and, and, you know, we live in a day and age where people who want to lust after someone, if they've got a computer and Internet access, they can do it. Pornography is so prevalent on the Internet in, 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 in the mornings when I'm doing my PowerPoint slides, I will do Google Images to find some of the images. And I'll type in, 
the, the reason the Miley Cyrus comment came into my brain is because I was thinking, how am I going to illustrate this? Oh, I need a picture of a wrecking ball smashing into a building. So I just typed into Google Images, wrecking ball. The first 50,000 pictures are of Miley Cyrus's video. And you sit there and you think, man, this is all around us. And so Jesus says, harsh teaching here. It's not just a question of don't commit adultery. It's not just the box. Can you check it off and say, hey, I didn't technically do that. Jesus says, you need to be transformed. And the transformation starts in your heart. It starts in your heart. So I bundled with this one of the passages that I believe in, that I live by, that I think so useful and important. I think I bundled it with this. Yeah, here it is. Job, Job 31. The first four verses of Job 31. Job, good insight. Look at this. First, ta, 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 ta. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Doesn't he see my ways and number all my steps? Now there are responses to this. There are responses of, hey, you can look, but you better not touch. There are responses of, boys will be boys. There are responses of, it's just hormones. It's natural. And I don't want to seem like some harsh, horrible guy up here saying this. But I got news for you. God wants to trump your hormones. God wants to trump the natural, sinful, fallen nature and wants to transform us. And how on earth we can sit here and say, God... Give me more self-control when we don't exercise the self-control we've already got. I'm not here to slam people and make them feel horribly guilty. This is not about guilt. This is about a decision to live righteously and let God transform who we are. That's what it's about. And the blessings that come from that are the blessings of understanding and being closer to God. The, the, the distance between us and God that is there, there's no eternal difference, distance, because God has bridged that through the death of Christ. He has made us whole and righteous eternally. But meanwhile, while we're still in this earth, in this old man, he's trying to, to he's promised to draw us into righteousness. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, it's just not working in my life. Wrong! You're here listening to this. If we weren't here listening to this, maybe I'd go with you. But the very fact that we're listening to this is, is this the message, not of me. I get in the way of these messages. The message is the Lord's message from Scripture that's saying, I really want to change who you are. And don't get frustrated that it doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process. Okay, I've totally messed up getting through a bunch of this, but I'm sorry. I'm just sort of on a soapbox. So uh, I decided that I really want, we've got a huge family. 
we've got five kids. One of our daughters married, another daughter getting married. And they're both marrying into marvelous families of just good, godly people. We're so excited about uh, the marriage that's already taken place, the marriage that will take place. I've got sisters and, and brother-in-laws who love the Lord. And they've got kids who love the Lord. Uh, my my mom loves the Lord. My mother-in-law, Becky's mom, loves the Lord. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could convince all of my family members and extended family members to each person write up about 10 devotionals, just short little devotionals. And we would just publish for our family internally a linear yearly family devotional guide. We could have 365 devotionals and each one down at the bottom would say who prepared it. Just a passage with a little devotional thought and a closing prayer. So I emailed everybody and our daughter Gracie called me and she said, Dad, I want to do it, but I'm really concerned about something. I said, what's that? She said, well, I'm 25. She said, I'm sure whatever I write 20 years from now is going to really embarrass me. I'm going to look back and say, oh, what a kid. And I said, Gracie, it is my most earnest prayer that whatever you write 20 years from now, you'll look back and you'll say, my, how I've grown. Because if you don't say that, honey, that's, that's not a good thing. Because God is changing us little by little, little by little, little by little. And you may not notice it any more than you notice the physical growth of a kid that you watch each day. But when you look over periods of time, you can see the difference. And that's the assurance. So as we look through the PowerPoint, that's what we had. And we had these different passages. And I've got a little bit more time. And Dale, I forgot the points for home this week. But that's okay. I had an intruder in my house. Matthew 5.38. Look at Matthew 5.38 for a moment. This is one. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, if someone's evil, don't resist. If they slap you on the right cheek, turn to on the left. Um, and, and you look at that passage and you think, what? That seems to be very clearly a dismantling of the Old Testament law. Well, yes and no. Yes, in a sense, but no in a sense. Let me say the following. First of all, in the Old Testament times, if you compare the religion that God gave, or the, 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 the rules that God gave Israel to the rules of the nations around them, an eye for an eye was actually pretty merciful. Because the nations around them, if you messed someone's eye up, they'd kill you. If you took someone's cloak, they'd kill you. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I mean, the Old Testament is no, 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 no. It's lighter than that. Now, by the time you get to Jesus, Jesus isn't concerned with society's rules. He's not writing judge the penal code that the criminal judge will use to assess punishments. He's talking about people's interactions. And it's the same thing Pastor David was pointing out. Jesus is teaching us to see people as souls. The critical question for me is not, he, he hit me. The critical question for me is, how do I show the love of Jesus? How do I respond properly? Sometimes it's not going to be, here you wanted this, let me give you that as well. Jesus is speaking in a, almost a hyperbole to make a point. Sometimes it will be. Sometimes the best way you can help someone and show the love of Jesus is to say, time out, you can't do that. 
But whatever you're doing needs to be motivated by the love of Jesus and the desire to show Jesus to them. Does that make sense? So this is the moral code that we get. And I didn't get to cover some of the really fun stuff that would be in here. But um, there's there's some fun stuff. It's in your handout. Um, go have a chance to read it. There's some really, uh, it's some fun stuff. But we're out of time. And, and so like, oh, oh, but that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I put that in there too. The Good Samaritan parable. We kind of had that in opening. So why don't we close with it since I don't have points for home. Luke 10. Who's my neighbor? Whom should I show love to? Jesus says, well, first of all, I love that parable because it's a lawyer asking the question. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, the context of this is the lawyer wanting to know what boxes to check. And Jesus' comment was, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the guy answers with the Deuteronomy 6 passage, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The lawyer does. He at least gets that part right. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's great, go do it. But then the lawyer pushes it, wants the fine print. He says, who's my neighbor? I can do that as long as we get clear on who our neighbor is. And that's where Jesus gives the story of the man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls among robbers, he's beat up, He's left for half dead at the side of the road. And who comes around but a priest? Priest sees him, says, I ain't got time for that. I got to serve at the temple. Goes on the other side of the road so he won't even touch him because he can't be unclean and serve. So I put into our reading the priestly laws about cleanliness there so that we understand the priest wasn't just, oh, I hate it when people are beat up. I mean, the priest may have had heart compassion, but he's thinking, I can't touch him. I can't deal with him. I must stay clean to serve at the temple. My rotation is coming up. It's my turn to serve. So he passes by. Then a Levite who also has to stay ceremonially clean. I put that in there. He's same thing. Hey, I can't touch him. Then the Samaritan comes by, stops, binds up his wounds, takes care of him and takes him home. And that's how we're to live. We're to show this love of Jesus. So read the passages. Um, uh, and Steve, by the way, the reason he handed or emailed out the wrong thing is not because he emailed out the wrong thing. It's because I didn't give him the update. That was my fault, Steve, not yours. Thank you for helping fix it. But guys, we're working through this together and y'all have just been so kind. Would you let me pray a, a blessing over us? Lord, I'm a minute late, but I don't want to leave without asking you for a favor a very deliberate, specific favor in the name of Jesus. I pray that you will reach down and touch each of us deeply and stir up within us a desire from right where we are today to grow closer to you, to grow in holiness. Lord, may your spirit stir that desire up in us and give us the direction and Father, when we fall and when we stumble and when we seem to be making no progress, would you please pull our eyes off of ourselves back to the sacrifice of Jesus, trusting that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We trust you for that, Lord, for it's not within us. But Lord, we give you our hearts and we give you our minds and we don't want to walk in unholiness. We want to be in 
your holiness and righteousness. And that is our prayer, that we would deal with each other in love and kindness with the heart of Christ. Through whom we pray, amen.